Welcome to Shiloh Church. We hope you enjoy today's message. If you are in the Jacksonville, Florida area, please join us for worship or watch our services online at shiloh.church. Thank you. Good morning, church. Again, welcome Sunday morning at Shiloh. As you are standing, would you take your copy of God's Word and make your way to the book of Nehemiah chapter 1 in the Old Testament Nehemiah chapter 1, as has already been mentioned, today begins what we call prayer emphasis week in the life of our church. We begin the year by committing ourselves, our needs, and one another to the Lord in prayer. At the end of this service, you'll be asked to fill out a prayer card and bring it to the altar as we close today. We'll leave those here all week. And we're asking every member of our church to stop by 15 minutes at some point this week and spend 15 minutes praying for someone else. Wednesday night, we will resume our midweek schedule at noon and at 7 p.m. I will lead corporate prayer meetings on Wednesday night. I'm encouraging your presence as we will pray over our elders, deacons, ministry leaders, and staff for the beginning of their work in the new year. And I want to give what I'm calling our State of the Church Address, just casting vision for the new year. As well, in the cards you received as you came in each morning, Monday through Friday this week at 6 a.m. for about 15 minutes, I'll lead a prayer call where we'll consider the petitions of the Lord's Prayer together briefly and what they teach us about how to approach God in prayer. And it'll be my privilege to be praying for you as you begin your day. Let's ask God now to help us to understand this word. And then I want to read to you from Nehemiah 1 and you may be seated. Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather to worship you in spirit and in truth and for the privilege of prayer. We praise you for the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ that has opened for us a new and living way to you. And we are asking in his name that you would now open our understanding that we may comprehend the scriptures. I pray, Father, that you would help us to lay aside all filthiness and rampant wickedness so that we may receive with gentleness the implanted word that is able to save our souls. Help us to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. Lord, would you please grant me physical strength and spiritual energy to speak your word with faithfulness, clarity, authority, passion, wisdom, humility, and freedom. And as the seed of the word is planted and watered, we look to you for the increase and give you the glory for the fruit that shall come from this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Nehemiah chapter 1. And I want to begin reading at verse number five. Through my personal devotion, study, and public teaching from the English Standard Version of the Bible, and therein, the reading of God's Word is this. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of your people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, From there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, 
Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. I want to label the message, the kind of prayer God answers. The kind of prayer God answers. Why pray? There are two fundamental reasons why you should pray. First, the Word of God commands it. Secondly, you should pray because it works. God hears and answers prayer. But there are, but there are times when God does not answer prayer. In fact, there are some prayers that are so displeasing to God that God will not even listen to them, much less answer them. This is why the prayer of Nehemiah in this first chapter of the book that bears his name is such a good model for us. Here, Nehemiah prays with a holy preoccupation with the fact that God is not obligated to answer prayers that dishonor him. Look at the language of the text. For instance, in verse number 6 that begins with Nehemiah praying, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open. Or drop down to verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the, to the prayer of your servant. This is anthropomorphism, scholars call it. God is spirit who does not have ears and eyes as we do, yet Nehemiah ascribes these physical attributes to God to emphatically make the point that there are some prayers that are so displeasing to God that, listen, God, as it were, covers his eyes so that he cannot see and plugs his ears so that he cannot hear. But that did not happen to Nehemiah. God saw Nehemiah. God heard Nehemiah. God answered Nehemiah. And the Bible has left on record this transcript of Nehemiah's actual prayer to teach us about the kind of prayer God answers. And I want to show you that in the text today. But first, let me warn you this sermon is not meant to teach a shortcut to answered prayer. I detest religious formulas that domesticate biblical truth, trivialize God's sovereign ways, and rob the journey of faith from its intended sense of adventure. So don't expect this message to give you a shortcut to answer prayer. Instead, I want to show you the long, scenic route to an answered prayer. And it is this. God answers the prayer of the one who is totally committed to him. God answers the prayer of the one who is totally committed to him. Answered prayer is the out of a committed life. God did not answer Nehemiah's prayer because Nehemiah said the right words the right way. God accepted Nehemiah's prayer because God accepted Nehemiah. It was not so much about the words that were said as it was about the one who was doing the talking. James chapter 5, verse 16, 
The B part of that verse affirms this when it says that the effective prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Let me translate that for you. God is not impressed with wordy eloquence, vain repetition, high volume, emotional intensity, name it and claim it, or any other religious hocus pocus. But when a person whose heart is right with God begins to pray, God's eyes are attentive, God's ear is inclined, and God's hand is outstretched. The question is, what does it take to get God's attention and approval and activity on your behalf like that? I, I don't know about you, but when I start praying, I don't want God to put his cosmic headphones on and turn his back. I, I want God. To ask the psalmist, it says, incline his ear to me. And to reach for his resources to provide what I need. And this transcript of Nehemiah's prayer shows us the kind of prayer God answers. Four features of the prayer God answers. First, God answers sincere prayer. God answers sincere prayer. The book of Nehemiah begins in the city of Susa, says verse 1, the winter residence of King Artaxerxes. Nehemiah is there, says the last sentence of chapter 1, because he is the cupbearer of the king, a high-ranking executive position in the royal cabinet. Verse 2 tells us that while he was carrying out his official duties, his brother Hananiah shows up with other men from Judah, and over the course of their time together, Nehemiah inquires about the condition of the Jewish exiles who have returned to Judah from Babylonian captivity. Nehemiah is a successful man in a foreign land but he has not forgotten where he had come from. So he inquires about the city of Jerusalem and the condition of the Jews who returned there from the exile. The response he gets is in verse number three. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who have survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. That's the condition of the people. The condition of the city is the next sentence. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. And its gates are destroyed with fire. Concerning both the city and the people who live there, Nehemiah received tragic news. Verse 4 tells us how he responded. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. We see first... Nehemiah, in verses four, verse 4, we see his natural reaction. He sat down and he wept and he mourned. You would have done the same. But would you have practiced Nehemiah's spiritual response? Because at some point, he stopped mourning and weeping and started fasting and praying. Nehemiah responded to the need with prayer. He not just prayed, he prayed sincerely. And, and the evidence that Nehemiah prayed sincerely is what you find between verse 4 that tells us that he prayed and verse 5 that tells us what he prayed. Between the two, there is absolutely nothing. He tells us, verse 4, that I prayed and the rest of the chapter is just a report of what he prayed. The entire book begins with a prayer before anything else happens. And it is meant to teach us something about sincere prayer that God answers. And it is this. God responds to prayer that is a first response, not a last resort. God responds 
When prayer is your first response, not your last resort. Now, I don't want to put in tension here prayer and work. The two are not opposed to each other. Nehemiah is a man of action. I would encourage you to read this book in the private chambers of your own praying ground. This is a masterful manual of effective leadership, shrewd, shrewd organization, and unwavering diligence. You want to learn how to be a leader, study Nehemiah. But as you study the lessons on leadership, essential to his leadership is prayer. There are at least 12 recorded prayers in the book of Nehemiah at every turn. Before Nehemiah does anything, Nehemiah takes it to God in prayer. This is sincere prayer. Sincere prayer recognizes that there's a lot you can do to help the situation after you pray, but there is nothing you can do to help the situation until you pray. When we work, we work, but when we pray, God works. And if you need God to do something special in your life, it happens after prayer. People say, oh, if you've tried everything else, and everything else has failed, try God. People may mean well saying that, but all that is is an invitation to hypocrisy. Because if you only talk to God after you've tried everything else, your prayer is lacking something important that God is looking for, and that is childlike dependence. People who depend on God go to Him first. They don't treat God like 911, where we do everything to handle it on our own and then only call on God in a state of emergency when nothing else will work. God answers prayer from those who use prayer as a first response and not a last resort. Elijah Hoffman was a Puritan pastor who served in Pennsylvania. And one day he left to study to visit a troubled member. She unburdened her cares to him. He didn't know what to tell her. He read some scripture and stuff to buy himself some time and only said what could come to his mind with all of the troubles that you're having, ma'am, you should take them to the Lord. You must tell Jesus about it. And to his surprise, when he said it, he could see the burden lift off the woman. <laughs> and with a smile on her face, she began to say, I must tell Jesus. I must tell Jesus. I, I must tell Jesus. And, and when he left, he could still hear that woman's words in his ear. I must tell Jesus. And before he made it back to his study, he had formed in his mind the words of his most beloved hymn. I must tell Jesus. Jesus, all of my trials, I cannot bear these burdens alone. In my distress, he kindly will help me, for he ever loves and cares for his own. That, friend, it must be your attitude. If you're going to see God move to answer your prayer, may I make a simple recommendation if something's going wrong in your life? Stop spending so much time talking to people who can't do anything about the situation in the first place. Say to your soul, I must tell Jesus all about my trial because God answers what? sincere prayer. Secondly, God answers reverent prayer. God answers reverent prayer. As I mentioned, verse 4 tells us that Nehemiah prayed. Now verse 5 will begin to tell us what he prayed. The Bible says, 
prayer begins, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. The previous verses, for recap, tell us Nehemiah received bad news. The news was so troubling that Nehemiah sat and wept and mourned for days. He was fasting and praying. And now when we are told what he prayed, in verse 5 we see that Nehemiah, though he was carrying a heavy burden, did not rush into God's presence with a grocery list of personal requests. In fact, just make note of this. Before Nehemiah, Nehemiah doesn't mention the thing for which he prays. He doesn't even bring it up until verse 11, the last verse of the chapter and the end of the prayer. Before he asks God for anything, he just offers praise and worship and adoration to God. He begins his prayer, listen, not by talking about his trouble, but by talking about his God. Notice that he recognized the transcendence of God. Verse 5, he calls him the Lord God of heaven. He ascribed majesty to God. He says, you are the great and awesome God. I like that. It would have been enough to call him one or the other. He says he's great and awesome. He honored the faithfulness of God. He says he's the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. May I commend to you, church, this is another reason why God answered Nehemiah's prayer. It's because Nehemiah's prayer was reverent, worshipful, and God intoxicated. His prayer wasn't just about him, it was about God. When I began high school, I was introduced to a phenomenon that I had never seen in all of my short life. I got to high school and classmates around me were calling their parents by their first name. I'd never seen this before. Calling daddy Bill. Calling their mama Jackie. I was blown away, but at the same time it seemed kind of cool. So I went home <laughs> and started calling my daddy HB. Mind you, over the course of my entire life, I never heard anyone address my daddy without some kind of handle. Rev, Doc, Pastor. My mama called him Rev. But that didn't stop me. I was walking around the house, HB this and HB that, and he never said anything to me ever about it. So I thought it was okay. Until my mom came in the room and told me that my father had not said anything because he was brokenhearted. That I was disrespecting him by addressing him as HB. He not only thought I was being intentionally rebellious, but he thought by calling him HB that I was denying his paternal authority over him, over me. And I can tell you without a doubt, I grew up that day. That day shook me of my foolish notions of what maturity is all about. That day I definitively recognized that, that Maturity, independence, and adulthood would never put me on my daddy's level. It didn't matter how old I got or how big I got or whatever. He, he was my father, and, and there should always be some distance, some, some respect, some, some acknowledgement that, that I'm not on his level. He, he's my father. 
I definitively learned that lesson about my earthly father that day. But I am sad to confess that that is still a lesson at times I have to learn about my heavenly father. And I'm not by myself. And I suggest that this is why many of us are not effective in prayer because we don't recognize the one to whom we are praying. God is not Shiloh. God is not the man upstairs. If it's just a man upstairs, we're in big trouble. He's the Lord God of heaven. He's the great and awesome God. He is the God that keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. If God is going to answer your prayer, you got to recognize that the God to whom you pray is, wait for it, God. Do you know who you're talking to when you pray? You're talking to the one who before history's dawn unrolled the blueprint to the foundation of the world and by his sovereign will brought cosmos out of chaos. You're talking to the one who stood on the scaffold of his own being, creating the world and broke the silence of a not-yet-universe with his own voice by just saying, let there be light. You are, do you know who you're talking to? You, you, you are talking to the one who created the heavens and the earth and caused the earth to orbit on its axis around the sun and then placed on it mother nature and father time and told them to dance together and don't get dizzy. Do you know who you talking to? You talking to the one that made the sun from the brilliance of his face. You talking to the one who flung the stars like a million flaming skyrockets against the ebony dome of Eden. You are talking to the one who flung the fleecy white clouds against the azure-colored canvas of the vaulted blue. You are talking to the one that gave wetness to the water, dryness to the ground, sweetness to the sugar, and sour to the lemon. You talking to the one that taught the dog how to bark, the cow how to move, and the lion how to roar. You are talking to the one who took a lump of clay stamped his image on man's brow, put the quest for truth in man's heart, and then exhaled, and man stood tiptoe as a living. Do you know who you talking to when you pray? When you pray, don't start your prayer. Don't start your prayer asking, give me this. Help me with that. Fix that, Lord. Change that, Lord. Provide the other, Lord. Stop that, Lord. You need to start your prayer praising the great and awesome God. And listen, you need to start your prayer like Nehemiah did so you can end your prayer like Nehemiah did. You got to look at verse 11, where Nehemiah finally says, Lord, give success to your servant this day and grant me mercy in the sight of this man. Wait, 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 wait. You, you. Lord, I need mercy with this man. Who is this man? Go forward. One verse, chapter 2, verse 1, says he is talking to King Artaxerxes of Persia. The people have been taken into captivity by Babylon, but now, almost a century later, Persia has defeated the Babylonian Empire. And Persia is the world's sole superpower at the day of Nehemiah. Politically, militarily, and economically, 
Artaxerxes is the most powerful man on the face of the earth. Now go back to verse 11 and note that Nehemiah doesn't call him great, sovereign, mighty Artaxerxes. He doesn't even call him king. He says he's just a man. And because he spent time recognizing the goodness and the greatness and the glory of God, he, he, he's able to shrink Artaxerxes down to his level. J.B. Phillips in his book has a simple theory in his book called Your God is Too Small. His theory is simply this, that if you got a big God, you only got little problems. But if you got a little God, you got big problems. This is why with what you dealing with in your house, in your marriage, in your body, on your job, I'd never miss church if I was you. I'd be marked present every week to hear the songs of praise, to hear the saints in prayer, to be under the Word of God so that I could go home and remember my sickness ain't God, God is God. My boss ain't God, God is God. My bills are not God, God is God. My enemy is not God, God is God. God answers what? Sincere prayer. God answers secondly what? Reverent prayer. Thirdly, God answers honest prayer. God answers honest prayer. Let me just give you the outline of the prayer. Verse 5 is worship. Verses 6 through 10 is confession. And then verse 11 is request. The bulk of the prayer is Nehemiah coming clean with God about his sin. Before he asks for something, he, he first deals with the things that may be standing in the way of him getting an answer from God. This is why he says in verse 6, he knows that if he's in sin, God's not going to look or listen. So he said, let your ear be attentive and your eye open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which, and he ain't just pointing the finger, we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. I haven't done what they did, but I'm guilty too. He says, verse 7, we have acted very corruptly. We haven't kept your commands and statutes and rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. And then he, he says, Lord, we're in trouble. And we need you to get us out of trouble. But before I ask you to get us out of trouble, I, I need to admit we are in trouble because we are getting what we deserve. Verse 8, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying that if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. The sinfulness of Israel was great, pervasive, and indefensible. They were only getting what they deserved. And you would think that because of the people's sin, God would ignore the prayer of Nehemiah. But I submit to you, that the acknowledgement that he had done wrong was the very thing that made God answer. Because God answers honest prayer. I know we're in church, but can we be honest for just a moment? There are times when we don't pray because we know we messed up. We done messed up, and we don't want to admit what we did, so we skip over prayer as if by not talking, God is not going to know what we did. <laughs> but Nehemiah says we should be honest with God. 
so that he'll answer our prayers. 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to do what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yet confession is arguably the most neglected area of prayer. We lie to God and to others and to ourselves about our sins. And so our prayers go unanswered. Psalm 66 verse 18 says, If I cherish iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not listen to me. And yet we go on lying to others and lying to ourselves about our real selves because we fail to view ourselves through the perfect revelation of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And because we fail to view God through the lens of love provided in Christ, we inevitably try to earn God's favor through good works. And it's impossible to be honest with God if you're trying to impress God at the same time. So instead, we become hypocrites, pretending to be something that we know we are not. And as a result, this hypocrisy flows into all of our relationships. And so, honesty about self is a seldomly realized commodity in the world and in the church. People rarely get to meet us. They, they only meet our representatives. <laughs> Brennan Manning, in his book, Abba's Child, raised the question this way, is there anyone I can level with? Anyone I dare tell that I am benevolent and malevolent, chaste and randy, compassionate and vindictive, selfless and selfish, that beneath my brave words lives a frightened child, that I dabble in religion and pornography, that I have blackened a friend's character, betrayed a trust, and violated a confidence, that I am tolerant and thoughtful, a bigot and a blowhard, and I hate hard rock music. <laughs> let me answer, let me answer that for, for Manning, for myself, and for you. The good news for us ragamuffins is that there is someone that we can be totally honest with. Hold on to your pew. I'm about, to, I'm about to blow your mind when I tell you that it's the very person you are tempted to try to hide from because of his holiness, justice, and wrath. Listen, look at the text. As he confesses his sin in verses 6 and 7, he reminds God of what God warned his own people. That if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. That's exactly what God did in the Babylonian captivity. But that's not the end. He said, also, Lord, verse 9, remember you also said that if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. You missed it. Let me try it again. Because God is holy. God says if you sin, I'll punish you. But because God is love, he says if you return to me, I'll give you another chance. Not, not only will I forgive you, he says, I'll restore you. L look at verse 9. He says, even if you are outcast to the uttermost parts of heaven. I, I want you to get this. He says, it doesn't matter how far you've gone. My grace can reach you and bring you back. I wish I had help in this house. 
you got people in your life who will walk with you, but before you begin the journey, they will tell you, I will only walk with you as long as you are right, as long as you don't hurt me. But God begins the journey by saying, now, I already know before we leave, you're going to mess up. I already know you're going to walk away from me. You're going to forget about me. But if you come back to me, I will give you another chance. I was sitting in Aunt Rosalie's on Western Boulevard in Los Angeles having breakfast and reading before I went to work one day years ago. And as I was reading, the author of the book told a story of writing on the New Jersey Turnpike, where in some distance before him, there was a Lincoln town car. And as he noticed, all of a sudden, he saw hands throw a collie out the window. The dog rolled over into the embankment, gets up bruised and bleeding. But as he is traveling, he says the collie gets up hurt and limping about starts chasing after the car that just threw it out. I, I paused and processed what I was reading. But, but when I started reading again, I started shouting in Aunt Rosalie's Soul Food Restaurant. Because what blew my mind is that the author suggested that the dog represents God. And the question of the story is how many times have we kicked God to the curb, deciding to go our own way without him? And God should have gave up on us a long time ago. But God is the hound of heaven that even though in 2015 you forsook him, in 2016 he gave you another chance. Are y'all in here with me? Why does he do it? Why does he keep putting up with us? Why does he keep blessing us? Why does he keep giving us another chance? Why does he do it? Look at verse 10. I'm glad you asked. That's why I like preaching to y'all. Y'all ask all the right questions. Nehemiah, this is why you need to trust Jesus and have a relationship with God based upon what he has done, not what you do. Watch how Nehemiah negotiates with God. He says in verse 10, these are your servants and your people who you redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. You missed it. Let me try it again. He said, now, Lord, this is why I'm asking you to give us another chance. We no good, but we yours. <laughs> we keep messing up, but we belong to you. Are y'all in here with me? We have failed, but we your people. We your servants, and you obligated, Lord, to take care of that which belongs to you. And for the record, Lord, we are not yours because of what we did. We are yours because of what you did. You redeemed us by your great power and your strong hand. Paul says it this way in Romans 8, verse 32. Paul raises this question. He who spared not his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not graciously with him give us everything that we need? If God gave Jesus the best that he had to die for your sins, can't you trust him to provide what you need along the journey so that you can make it safely home to glory? I got one more idea. The first thing I've said is that God answers what? Sincere prayer. Secondly, God answers what? Reverent prayer. Thirdly, God answers what? Honest prayer. Finally, God answers believing prayer. 
Nehemiah heard bad news. It broke his heart. He was sitting on the floor, mourning and weeping. He finally got up, stopped eating, was praying. And in his prayers, as you read the rest of Nehemiah for yourself, you'll see that he made himself available to God to do something about the situation. Nehemiah was not like many of us who watch the news and say, that's a shame. He said, Lord, use me to help make a difference. But Nehemiah, and, and, and watch this. Nehemiah has been strategically placed by God to make a difference in the world around him. He's a foreigner, a slave, working in a distant land, but God was setting him up to use him. This is why you will misunderstand God if your view of divine activity in your life is inverted about you. God doesn't place you for you to prosper, be successful, and accomplish your dreams. It may be that that weird place where you don't know why God has put you there, he's setting you up so that he can use you to be a blessing to him's name in the life of somebody else. Nehemiah made himself available, but he was smart enough to know that he could do nothing to help the situation without the hand of God. So look at verse 11. He says, God, I need you to do two things. Now he finally asks for what he needs. He says, I need you to give me success today. I'm about to go for it. And I need you to make me successful. And I need mercy. Watch this now. I don't need mercy from you. What I need right now is mercy from this man. I need this man to be merciful to me. Why is that? Because chapter 2, verse 1 says, this man is Artaxerxes of Persia. And the reason why he prays like this, look at the last sentence of verse 11. Stay with me for just a moment. He says, I was the cupbearer of the king. Over the course of this year, God willing, the country we live in, will experience a great blessing that we often take for granted. Namely, there will be a free and open election. And the citizens of this nation will have the freedom to vote for the new president of the nation. You might not like whoever gets elected, but all of us are free to participate in the process, and there will be a peaceful transition of authority, even if it's across party lines. This is why you can't impose the contemporary cultural things that happen today on the scripture because it's two totally different worlds. There is no democratic government in the Bible. No political leader in the Bible is ever voted into office. Let me tell you how you got a new king in the day of Nehemiah. You assassinate the old king. You want a new king? You kill the old king. And these, these ancient kings were so paranoid that somebody was trying to kill them that, you know, you got all these royal positions, secretary of state, secretary of defense, and all of that. But they also had another role called the cupbearer. And the cupbearer is exactly what it sounds like. He would carry the king's and if the king got thirsty, the servant would pour something to drink into the cup. And the cupbearer would take a drink first. And if the cupbearer didn't die, <laughs> then the king would have a taste. That's how paranoid these ancient kings were. 
But Nehemiah is about to go before the throne of the most powerful man on the planet who is so paranoid he's got royal tasters before he takes a drink of something. And Nehemiah is going to ask this king for an indefinite leave of absence. Your majesty, I need permission to leave the country. But this paranoid king of his own, Nehemiah would not only leave the country making that request, he wouldn't leave that room alive. And Ezra chapter 4 tells us that the political opponents of Israel convinced King Artaxerxes that Israel was just filled with rebels. And so the king signed an executive order that the city of Jerusalem was not to be rebuilt. Let's try this again. The most powerful man in the, un on the, un in the planet who is so paranoid he has a cupbearer. Nehemiah is about to ask him for an indefinite leave of absence, watch this, to go rebuild a city that the king declared was not to be rebuilt. This is a suicide mission. Except for the fact that Nehemiah knew a king greater than Artaxerxes. And before he went to talk to the little king, he went and talked to the big king. Y'all ain't in here with me. And because he trusted the big king, he was not worried about the little king. And God answered Nehemiah's prayer because Nehemiah trusted God with something so big that it was doomed to fail without God's help. You got to look at chapter 2 with me. Don't close your Bible. He just trusted God. And I want you to see what God did. He is sad in the presence of the king, which no royal servant would ever do because why would you be sad if the king is so great? And if the king saw you looking sad, he might start thinking you up to something. But instead, the king asks what's wrong. Nehemiah tells him the truth. And in verse 4, chapter 2, the king says, what do you want? What is your request? You missed it. Instead of killing him, the king said, just tell me what you want. Look at verse 5. Nehemiah said, well, if it pleased the king, and if I found favor in your sight, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Verse 6, the king said, just tell me how long you're going to be gone. Y'all not even listening to me here. Then verse 7, Nehemiah went further. If it pleases the king, so that, I, so that no foreign ruler will stop me on my way to Judah, give me a visa, write letters, so that the governors of the province beyond the river will let me pass through on my way to Judah. Mm -mm, he's not done there. Verse 80 says, and I also need you to write a letter to Asaph. Asaph is the guy who's over your forest. And I need you to give me a letter to him so that he can give me wood for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city, watch this, and so I can build me a house while I'm there. Verse 8 says, and the king granted me what I asked. He says, and let me tell you why. Because the good hand of my God was upon me. One more verse. He says, I came, verse 9, to the governors of the province beyond the river and I gave them the letters, the visa that I could pass through. But 
Not only that, the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. I just asked for a visa <laughs> so I could pass through. But the Lord was so good, the king didn't just write a letter. Watch me. He sent secret service men to travel with me to make sure I safely made it to Judah. Let, let me try that another game. The, the, the Lord didn't just give me what I asked. He did exceedingly, abundantly, above all that I could ask or think. This is the kind of prayer God answers. God answers believing prayer. Y'all hear me say that phrase all the time. What is believing prayer? It's prayer with expectation. It's not, you know, the, the city had come together in a drought to pray for rain. But only one old lady showed up with an umbrella. That's believing prayer. That when you pray for rain, you bring your umbrella and your rain boots because you expect God to respond. B believing prayer doesn't mean you, you a master of theology. It means you believe this simple truth. Write it down in three words and then underline it when you write it down. God is able. You missed it. I need to say it again. God is able. God is able. God is able to put your troubled marriage back together. God is able to bring your wandering teenager back home and set them on the right path. God is able to sustain your job even though they're threatening to lay people off. God is able to give you strength after the doctor has given you a bad report. God is able to comfort your heart after it's been broken by somebody you trusted. God is able to forgive that sin that you can't admit to nobody else. God is able to save that lost loved one that you've been praying for for decades. God is able to do immeasurably beyond all you can ask or think. My daddy couldn't sing at all. But when he would get happy, I could hear my daddy in his big rugged voice belching out like a ship that's tossed and driven, battered by an angry sea. When the storms of life are raging and this fury falls on me, I wonder what I have done to make this race so hard to run. But then I say to my soul, don't worry, the Lord will make a way somehow. I'm sitting down, but that's what I want to tell somebody here. That if you trust him with your need, the Lord will make a way somehow. You ain't excited about that because you don't know how he's going to do it. But how ain't your business? How is God's business? Somehow, he'll keep a roof over your head. Somehow, he'll open doors closed in your face. Somehow. The Lord will make a way. Yes, he will. 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 We hope you enjoyed today's message. 
for contact information, ministry updates, as well as our live Sunday morning broadcast, please visit us online at shallow.church. Thanks again for listening. Have a blessed day.